invite you to turn to Mark chapter 10. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 12 this morning. As we come to Mark 10, we encounter a lengthy teaching section where Jesus demonstrates the value of true followers of Jesus. You remember there are three predictions of of Jesus' death that he gives in Mark 8, 9, and 10. We're just after the second prediction of his death. And after he predicts his death, the disciples always fail. And then Jesus teaches them what it means to be a follower of his. And in this teaching in chapter 9, we saw that um, it means that we will see relationships differently. Chapter 9, he makes statements like, um, you will be, if you're a follower of mine, you will be servant of all and last of all. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ. We'll see that differently than the world or the culture around us. If we are to follow Jesus Christ, that means we will not reject those without proper credentials. We will not reject people who who are uh, followers of Jesus Christ that we're just not familiar with. And he He tells us that in the story of the unknown exorcist that we looked at last week. He also says, if you will follow me, that means you will not abuse those who are vulnerable. Those little believers in Jesus Christ. You will not abuse them or you're not a follower of Jesus. In fact, the fires of hell are reserved for those kind of people. As we turn the page in Mark chapter 10, we have the first verse of this chapter. He continues his teaching, and his teaching will address three major subjects. Um, He first will say that if you are going to be a follower of mine, you will see marriage differently, verses 1 through 12. That's what we're going to look at today. Beyond that, he's going to say in verses 13 through 16, you will see children differently, and then he'll say you will see wealth or riches differently uh, Mark 10, 17 through 31, we'll deal with those things next week, so if you want to avoid hearing preaching about money, don't come next week. Talks about wealth there. So we're going to look at verses 1 through 12, where Jesus talks about, he lays out what I'm going to call his first principles of marriage, about marriage. If you are to follow Jesus, you must view marriage this way as well. Now, today's subject is going to be a difficult subject, marriage and divorce. It perhaps becomes even more difficult to discuss in our modern day because of all the conflicting views and because of the increasing rates of divorce. There's probably not a one of us in the room who have been unaffected, who have not experienced divorce, whether that is in our own marriage our parents, our children, our grandchildren, our aunt or uncle, our close friends or coworker, I think we'd be hard-pressed to find anyone in the room who hasn't been closely impacted by divorce. And this subject becomes extremely difficult for preachers to address today. I mean, to even broach the subject normally brings challenge from the congregation, or at least, you know, the, the nice way of doing it is, let me just caution you. That's another way of, like, maybe challenging the preacher. I remember talking with several of my friends who are in pastoral ministry. They said, you know what, you want, to, you want to talk about something where you will receive criticism and negativity? Talk about divorce and marriage. We challenge or caution preachers not to be too dogmatic 
in your sermon. Or condemnatory or judgmental. One, one wonders how the straightforward, harsh preaching of John the Baptist against the remarriage of Herod and Herodias would be received by the modern church today. That's too dogmatic. It's too divisive or too unloving. Yet, John the Baptist held so strongly in his public criticism of the illegitimate marriage of Herod and Herodias that it cost him his life. He's unwilling to flinch from this. Today we're going to look and see what Jesus says about it, and hopefully moderns can receive what Jesus says. So at least say this, at Colonial Baptist Church, we must receive what Jesus says about it if we're going to be his followers. Does this make sense? You follow Jesus, you got to follow his words. And so I want to work through this text with you, and I think it divides into two stages I'll give you the first one, verses 1 and 2, kind of set, gives this setting where we see the Pharisees' question about divorce. So look down in your Bible at verse 1. It says, And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond, and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them, and Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And before we go into the, the, the heart of the debate, which occurs in verses 3 and following, We see here, we need to make a few observations about the setting. First of all, we see that the text says that Jesus left there. That that means that uh, Jesus is leaving the private home that he had been been in in the end of chapter 9, where he had been teaching the disciples. Jesus was probably in the city of Capernaum, maybe in Peter's home, and he leaves there, and he leaves the private instruction he's giving the disciples, And he goes to a public location where in this text he will be interacting with with Pharisees and crowds as well as the disciples. Now the text also says in verses 1 and 2 that Jesus went, uh, he left there and he went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. This is consistent with what Mark is doing in his gospel. Mark has Jesus now making his way to Jerusalem. He's leaving the outer rings of Galilee. Now he's going to be making his way to the city. And in this public location, the Pharisees ask Jesus a difficult question. They ask him in verse 2, does the law allow for a man to divorce his wife? I think this is a difficult question for Jesus for many reasons. One of which was the fact that not even the Pharisees themselves could agree on the answer. It's very interesting that if you were to study the the doctrine of the Pharisees, you would see uh, a few things here. Uh, First of all, you see that there are different views among the Pharisees. Um, One view would would have been taught by Rabbi Shammai. Rabbi Shammai would be uh, basically a contemporary of Jesus. He held a minority position on divorce. And basically what this rabbi taught was that the only thing that could allow for divorce would be adultery. Marital infidelity. And so if a man became convinced that his wife had cheated on him in the marriage, that would be, according to Shammai, legitimate grounds 
for a divorce. And so I believe that there would be Pharisees from the school of Shammai who would be in existence when they're asking Jesus' questions. You get this view? Only for adultery. However, there were other rabbis who taught different things. And this comes down to how they interpreted an Old Testament text that we'll look at in just a moment. But Rabbi Hillel and Aqaba, had a diff- they had different uh, interpretations of this. This would be the majority position among first century Jews. This is what most of them would hold. And they taught that there would be a whole host of legitimate reasons whereby a man could seek a divorce from his wife. So, for instance, if a woman was not able to bear a child for a man, that, according to Hillel, could be legitimate grounds for divorce. Or, worse yet, if she didn't produce a, a, a male child, okay, man child or whatever, a male child, a boy. That's the word I'm looking for, a boy. <laughs> Throwed back into the... Yesteryear there, a man cub. <laughs> a boy. Then, uh, then that could be legitimate grounds for divorce, according to Hillel. Rabbi Akiba taught that if a man found another woman more attractive to him, that's what Akiba said, that that could be legitimate grounds for divorce, or if his wife just grew unattractive, that could be legitimate grounds for divorce. Hillel taught that even something like burning the family meal could be legitimate grounds for divorce. Okay, so now before I go any farther, let me just say, I can see you elbowing each other out there. So <laughs> tell me a little something about your marriage here on that last one. But among the Pharisees, there were those who held these positions. There were conservatives only adultery, and there were liberals, anything indecent. The Pharisees, however, are less interested in coming to the bottom of this debate. They're more interested in ambushing Jesus and putting him in a scenario that he wouldn't be able to get out from underneath. So that leads us to the response of Jesus uh, in verses 3 through 12. So we're going to read his response in a moment, but This response comes in two ways. First, he responds to the crowds and the Pharisees in verses 3 through 9. And then he has a moment of private instruction for the disciples again in verses 10 through 12. And so I want to look first at the private statement with you, or I'm sorry, the public statement with you in verses 3 through 9. So look down in your Bible. It says, he answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed for a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So the authoritative Jesus issues a public statement, the first principles about marriage. And it has three parts here, at least how I see the text. First, there's a question in verse 4. Jesus asked them, what did Moses uh, 
tell you or what did he command you? When Jesus asked this, he's asking, what orders did you receive from Moses in the law? I think Jesus has a select passage in mind that he wants them to pull out, but he wants to hear from the Pharisees what they would say about this. So what command, what command did Moses give you? That leads to, the way I take verse 4, is a deflection. A deflection from the Pharisees. They say Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. I think the Pharisees' answer is very interesting in multiple levels. I mean, to answer Jesus, what they're doing in this one verse is they're alluding to an Old Testament text that made a concession or an allowance for divorce. It's found in Deuteronomy 24. So I'm going to invite you to turn back there for just a moment in your Bibles. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. Okay, so you get this, it's like this debate between Jesus and the Pharisees again. And when, when forced to answer the question, they're going to go to their Old Testament scripture. They have a text in mind that allows for divorce, and so they're going to use it. And so we're going to look at that very briefly. Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. Verse 1 says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house... And she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her, and writes a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of her house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she's been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving to you as an inheritance. I just want to give you uh, a few, uh, just a few observations about this text. First, this text does address someone writing or giving a bill of divorce. Some Israelite men were divorcing their wives because they found something indecent in her. And the word something indecent in the text seemed to teach that originally the problem was she had been unfaithful to him. I won't get into the specific words used there, but I think it's some sort of marital infidelity. Okay. I think it came to be used, as we just saw from some of the rabbis, in many different ways. They, they expanded on its meaning, something, uh, something indecent to expand other things. But originally, I think it was unfaithfulness. In such cases, if a man found this, uh, he was to serve papers to his wife if he wanted to pursue the divorce underneath the law of Moses. So doing would protect her and would enable her to re- be received by another household. But next, Moses gives a requirement in this text. There's one requirement, and that's verse 4. And that helps us see what's going on. Verse 4 says, Then let her former husband who sent her away, or he says, Then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife. Okay, I think that that helps us understand what's going on and why Moses gave this originally. It seems that some Israelite men... We're trying to avoid charges of, uh, of adultery by doing something very deceivious. They were divorcing their first spouse 
marrying another person for their own enjoyment, divorcing that second spouse, and then returning to their first love, their first spouse. And so Moses is stopping a legal loophole here. Israelite men had devised a way to indulge their flesh and avoid charges and punishment for adultery. So Moses won't have that. God won't have that in verses 1 through 4. He stops remarrying one's former wife. Now, returning to our discussion of Mark's gospel, go back to Mark's gospel. I want to show you one more thing then about this bill of divorce. I think this is a text perhaps that the Pharisees are considering when they said Moses allowed for there to be a bill of divorcement written. That is a text we just read. That's an error. The one thing I want to point out to you is that Jesus asked the Pharisees what Moses had commanded them, and their answer has to do with what Moses allowed or permitted. In other words, the word allowed here uh, speaks not, I don't think, of a commandment, but a concession. So I think it's important to see here that the the, the Pharisees aren't really answering Jesus' question. The Pharisees did not want to speak of God's original intentions in marriage. They wanted to speak of an exception or a concession that he made. Before we go too far, I want to make application and illustration here for us and consider this as we consider pursuing Christ. I would suggest that we should not settle in this way like the Pharisees. The Pharisees, are, are, are they a good example for us? Okay, like never. Okay, maybe there's like one text you could point, you know, you could come tell me about this later. They're not a good example for us. We shouldn't follow their example looking for concessions or exceptions instead of honoring God's original intention. Ricky Watts helps us here, and I, I think that he points us to the way I would, I would interpret this text. Ricky Watts says, uh, For Jesus' cross-bearing disciples, the goal is no longer a righteous divorce, but rather the imitation of God's grace. What Watts is pushing us toward is we should want to imitate God in our commitments to one another in marriage not just look for a loophole or a way out. Another man said it this way, Robert Stein, I would agree with Stein. He says, true discipleship, Jesus teaches, it's not to be lived out in light of the concessions given due to the fallen nature of humanity, but in light of the ultimate divine intention. And that's where Jesus is going to take us in this text in just a moment. We, we press God, I think, from time to time to see what we can get by with. Whereas Jesus is pushing us toward God's ultimate consideration. Let me illustrate this for us. I think sometimes at work or in parenting, we make a concession because of the situation or because of the insistence of the request, although it's lower than our ultimate intention. So imagine... You, you know, working at your company and you're, you're tasked with overseeing a group of people. Maybe you have lofty goals for your, your company. It's a part of your strategic plan. But, but then you hear the complaints of the employees. 
or you consider the reality, the messy reality of the situation. Your employees just don't seem capable of hitting the goal, so you make a concession. You slow things down, or you aim for more moderate goals. Can any of you relate to that at work or at home? Maybe you have lesson plans for your children if you're a homeschool parent. You lay out these lessons plans for the entire year, but then you face messy reality. You have unexpected pressures or setbacks, so you make concessions. You change deadlines or even revise the curriculum. You change the final goals, or even in some cases, you decide to go to school year-round until your children are 20 (laughs) to be able to meet the goal. I wonder, however, how often we press God to get by with the very least that we can do. We treat God harshly, and we look for a concession. We think... I can't hit God's goal. So let me look for some sort of acceptable, like middle ground here. Like say that I'm doing the Jesus thing, but still do what I want. One other commentator, he he, uh, summarizes this well. He writes, clearly to focus on what God allows due to the hardness of human heart rather than on what he commands And wills reveals a misguided focus. So the Pharisees are deflecting with a concession, but that won't do. That won't do for followers of Christ. And so then Christ gives an answer, an explanation of verses 5 through 9. And his explanation, it starts with an immediate clarification, then he gives two authoritative conclusions. And so We have to go quickly through this. We see in verse 5, the immediate clarification. The immediate clarification, look there. It says, and Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment to you. Jesus explains here why Moses wrote Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4 into the law. He did so because of how hard the heart of the Jewish people had become. Protecting women in these sort of abusive marriages. And so God is simply regulating sinful indulgence. But then he issues two authoritative commands in your Bible. Jesus does not just stop with the clarification, verse 5. In verses 6 through 9, he makes two assertions about the nature of marriage as God intends it. And these two assertions work together, and the second one builds right off of the first. The first assertion that he gives is in verses 6 through 8, and I'd summarize it with three words. Those three words are, what Genesis says. Okay, so Jesus is pushing the Pharisees and he's, he's going to show them that the law actually had something different originally in it at the beginning of the book. Okay, and so in verses 6 through 8, what he does is he quotes from Genesis 1, 27 and he adds to it Genesis 2, 24. You see that there. It says, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. That's a quote right out of the creation narrative in Genesis. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. 
Jesus' first answer, by the way, this is instructive for us. Jesus' first answer comes from Scripture. Comes from Scripture. The Pharisees did not directly answer his question, so Jesus redirects them from what God permits to what he commanded in Genesis. And Jesus here introduces a second Torah text, a second text from the law that the Pharisees should see as binding and authoritative. And he suggests that this text is primary because it's earlier and it contains God's original intention. This is like a Jewish way of arguing. Let me go back earlier in the law and show you that you're wrong. Let me give you a more specific text. The scriptural text comes from these two texts in Genesis. And what Jesus is doing here is he's combining these verses together, following what I believe is a Jewish custom of sometimes drawing the voice from multiple places in the Old Testament scripture, drawing them together and making one statement. When Jesus or the authors of the New Testament do this and they join two places like this together, normally it carries greater uh, rhetorical effect. It's like, boom, look what the scripture is doing, what it says. It also allows him to summarize or abridge all of Genesis 1 and 2. It's like me saying, I'm going to look at the front and back. We're going to eliminate the things in between. And this is just like a summary for the creation mandate. So what Jesus says here is that Genesis says that God's design for marriage includes a man and a woman brought together to become one. God's original intention is that marriage is not to be temporary, but is to be lasting. That's what Genesis says. But Jesus' second assertion follows in verse 9. Look in your Bible at verse 9, and you see the second assertion. I give three words to this. So Jesus says, okay, Pharisees, this is what I'm to tell you. This is what Genesis says, verses 6 through 8. And then verse 9, this is what I say. What Jesus concludes. Jesus' authoritative statement, look at verse 9. So, They are no longer two, but one flesh. He summarizes at Genesis. That's what it's saying. They're no longer two, but one. And here's his authoritative command. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus has one simple, clear command. Do not separate what God has joined together. That is, don't divide what God has added. This is Jesus' authoritative conclusion. Very simple. You want Jesus' word on this. Verse 9. But Jesus' teaching perhaps seems, I don't know, too simple or too controversial for the disciples. And so they take him aside and they ask him for clarification in verses 10 through 12. So I want you to look there, verses 10 through 12, and you'll see private explanation. Okay, so let's look at verse 10. It says, and in the house, the disciples asked him about the matter. And he said to them, whoever, this is his explanation, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, 
she commits adultery. Mark presents Jesus' words here very clearly. When a man divorces his wife and remarries, he commits adultery against her. And when a wife divorces a husband and, and marries another, she commits adultery. It's like a simple math problem. Divorce plus remarriage equals adultery. That's what Jesus says here in Mark. There's no other way to take it. There's no other way to take it. You might not like it. You might not like hearing it from me. There's not another way to take this. Now, what I want to do with this is I want to wrestle through with you two other important texts to go a little bit farther to understand a theology of marriage and divorce from the New Testament. Okay, we're going to do this quickly. If we're going to look at a theology of marriage and divorce, this is what Mark teaches. This is what Mark teaches from Jesus. This is what Jesus teaches. But there are two other texts that we need to wrestle through very briefly. The first one is Matthew 19. I ask you to turn there just for a moment. If you don't turn there, I'll put it up here. I don't know if you can read that or not, but I'll put it up here in the text. We're just going to go very quickly through this and just kind of show you these other texts. So one of the questions we have to work through, if we're going to figure out Jesus, you know, Mark says divorce plus remarriage equals adultery. It's from Jesus. But what about how this text is found in parallel accounts? Okay, there's a parallel account, same account in Matthew, Matthew chapter 19, where it seems to be that Jesus is giving one exception. One exception. Look at verse 7. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away, to, to, to divorce her? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So in this text, I think we have reflected the words of Jesus as well. And Matthew is portraying that when Jesus originally gave this, there was perhaps one possible exception to divorce plus remarriage equals adultery. And it's the word porneia. It's a Greek word, porneia. It says, except for sexual immorality. There are different ways that that one word can be understood. Sometimes interpreters take this broad word. The word porneia can mean any type of sexual sin. Okay, it can mean, uh, it's, it's kind of like a category word. So you could take the word porneia and adultery fits within that. So does incest, lustful thoughts and actions. It's all porneia. Sometimes, though, writers will come to Matthew, uh, this Matthew text, and, and, and they, they will take this word very narrowly. And they'll say that porneia means something like unfaithfulness during one's betrothal or engagement period. Okay, and one of the reasons they do that is because Matthew's written originally to the Jews, and so they think that's like a contextual trigger that would show you, okay, it's something narrow. It's not just that broad word porneia. It's something specific Jesus has in mind. So something like unfaithfulness during your engagement period, that, that in that case, Jesus would open it up and allow you to divorce, which, you know, you would need to divorce during an engagement or betrothal period. You would need legal papers to get out of that. Others will say 
uh, that is something narrow like incest. You're involved in a marriage to a relative or something, you find out later or whatever. First Corinthians 5 does use the word pornea in that way, and so some people use it narrowly. Others will say, you know, when, when Jesus says, except for sexual immorality, I think it's adultery. Just, just that one sin. Like if they cheat on me in my marriage, then I'm free to get divorced and remarried. I don't think that's the best view because a little bit later on the same verse, uh, if you're looking down again at, at, at uh, Matthew uh, chapter 19, there in verse... Uh, nine, he says, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for porneia and marries another commits adultery. That's a different word, moikeia. Okay, and so the point I make, if Jesus meant adultery in the first word, he would use that word, but he uses the word porneia, something broad. And so, instead, this word might speak more broadly of any ongoing sexual sin. Jesus' view then would not fit either rabbinic school well. His exception would be only for ongoing sexual sins is there a possible exception. So men and women, it may be that Jesus gives one exception to this rule. If a man or a woman is in a marriage where there is ongoing marital infidelity, ongoing sexual sins, that might be an exception. But, but even in such cases, I would suggest to you that it would be wonderful if God's original intentions in marriage would be achieved. Perhaps after uh, protection from an abusive spouse. I'm not saying, you know, if your spouse abuses you, you need physical safety perhaps even after legal ramifications or repent, and then repentance and counseling would be nice if God's original intentions could be designed. But that this is, this is the one possible exception. Now, there's another text I want you to consider for a moment. That's 1 Corinthians 7. We'll, we'll go quickly through this one because... I've already preached through this. You could go back to an old online sermon, 1 Corinthians 7. You can see on verse 15 what I said about that text. 1 Corinthians seven fifteen says, But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. My sermon, when I worked through this, I made the case that Paul is talking about divorce when he uses the word separates here. He's talking about divorce, and he's dealing with a very specific situation in Corinth. And the situation is, if an unbelieving partner goes down to the law courts in Corinth and demands a divorce, and he says, in such cases, the believing spouse is no longer under bondage, is no longer enslaved. That is, she can let him go. She's no longer obligated to the responsibilities of that first marriage. Or he is no longer obligated to the first marriage. Being, being no longer bound to their first marriage, it's likely or possible that this deserted believer can remarry. This would be another unique exception to those who've been abandoned by, a believing, uh, by an unbelieving spouse. Now, regardless here, 1 Corinthians 7 
reminds those of us who've been abandoned of the many ways that God will care for you and strengthen you. So if you've been abandoned or deserted by a spouse, my encouragement this week is go to 1 Corinthians 7, read through that text, and be reminded of God's love and care for you as a person. If we're looking at Mark's gospel, other than being deserted, or this pornea as a possible exception, in Mark's gospel, Jesus set, lays out the first principles regarding marriage. God's original design is for one man and one woman to be together throughout their physical existence. And Christ demands for his followers to believe in the permanency of marriage. If you're in a marriage today, God's desire for you would be to demonstrate the same type of unconditional, an unfailing love that God has shown you through the person and work of Jesus Christ. We're singing the song this morning, His Mercy is More. And think about the first part of this song. First verse says this. What love could remember no wrongs we have done? What type of love could remember no wrongs? Omniscient, all-knowing. He counts not their sum. Reflect upon those words for a moment. God's math, when it comes to followers of Jesus Christ, I didn't have time to write this up. You know, I was trying to do it on my phone beforehand. God's math, when it comes to us in Christ, would be this. My sin plus Christ equals forgiveness. And what I want to point out is that in marriage, when we've been wronged or abused or taken the wrong way, as long as we're physically safe, we have an opportunity, we have an opportunity to show the same type of unconditional love that God has demonstrated, us poor and needy sinners. And so as we, as we close here, I challenge you along those wise ways. This is countercultural, but these are the value, values of the followers of Christ. It's against our flesh, but it models God's commitment to us in Christ. So Jesus' first principles here are we must hold marriage high as a lifelong commitment to our spouse. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for how people have followed in the sermon. And I know, Lord, that this text and this preacher have dealt with many sensitive subjects. Lord, if there are marriages in danger in our assembly, we prayed at the beginning that you would give us ears to hear the authoritative Son of Jesus, Son of God, and what he has to say. And he makes it clear, your original intention is that a man and a woman would leave their father and wife, would become married, would cleave to each other, and that that marriage would be lasting. Lord, I pray that you would protect our marriages. For anyone considering marriage, I pray that they would see the, the grave significance of this covenant that we make to our spouse. Then, Lord, I pray that you would help anyone in our, in our assembly 
who finds themselves having been abandoned or deserted. I pray that you would be near to them. I pray that they would know your love and care and know that you are more than enough to sustain and strengthen them. May they experience that in you this, this week, we pray. We thank you for it in Jesus' name.